0: Welcome to Mintonburn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralised digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Navin, and we are tuning in from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and frontier ideas. Today, we're joined by Ellie Rennie and Cola Haywood Rotimi. Uh, for the third installment of the Digital Ethnography Reading Group. Now, this has been a special series in the lead up to the conference in Melbourne in December 2022 entitled What's Governing Web3? And in this episode, we focus on a speculative fiction piece, uh, which is yet to be released uh, and took place at the Redwood Forest uh, D-Web camp earlier this year. So stay tuned for this really fascinating piece on ethnographic methods and Web3.
1: First of all, thanks everyone for um, attending today. Um, this is uh, a digital ethnography and blockchain governance reading group. So I wanna start by just highlighting some of the motivations for the reading group. The three of us, myself, uh, Tara and Kelsey, who are the hosts today, um, wanted to convene a space where researchers interested in the role of the social and technical systems could meet and discuss key texts and emerging texts in the field. For today's session, we're, we're taking a bit of a broader view uh, of the social with an eye towards prototype social interactions in the context of a governance LARP, or otherwise known as a live-action roleplay, conducted IRL in August at DwebCamp and devised and produced by Black Swan, an organization that pursues horizontal and decentralized approaches to art making. Uh, Black Swan's work, uh, which is also closely associated with another Berlin-based organization, trust is aligned on developing practices and experiences for embodying, situating, and prototyping the speculative. That is building the social limbic memory and sensitivities that make for more nuanced and less brittle social technical assemblages in those instances where people are participating in systems of technical governance and, let's say, an environment like blockchains. So I'm going to start by laying out some of the methodology of this work. Um, one of the missions that we had when we were organizing DWeb was to develop as much inter- and transdisciplinary linkages and knowledge sharing across different people working and thinking about uh, the emerging space of technical governance. Um, the Black Swan, LARP, turned out to be a really fertile ground for fostering this type of collaboration. In the past, the Plex One has conducted other LARPs and had writers follow along with their activities, write reviews of the interactions, et cetera. Um, For D-WebCamp, we we continued that practice and brought together two researchers from different but complementary disciplines, Um, a digital ethnographer, also known as the ethnographer in the text, and a speculative fiction writer, AKA the historian. Uh, we have both the ethnographer and the historian here with us. The ethnographer was Ellie Rennie, and the historian was Kola hayward Uh And there are two guests today. Um, before I have them introduce themselves, I'm gonna give a, just a brief summary of the text that we circulated, um, which in fact is the, the first draft of the collaboration. And uh, this group is the first group to get their eyes on it. So we're really excited to be talking to you all about it. Um, and then after uh, my summary and the introductions, Um, Myself and my two co-hosts, Tara and Kelsey, will open with a question each and then we'll broaden it out to a wider discussion, uh, including questions and comments to all of you. So let me go ahead and start with a summary. Um, The piece that we read for today is called The Modules, an introduction and field notes. It's a text that's equal parts measured and playful, circumspect and cutting. The text opens with an introduction to the LARP governed by the administrators, a.k.a. the black swan facilitators. It details three archetypical organizational structures that participants are randomly assigned to and a fictional setting where they're responsible for managing an increasingly scarce resource fee. The three organizations are the platform, the online community, and the local org, uh, each with their own organizational particularities and allocations of resources. The orgs were devised in resonance with some of Betigab's previous research on this concept of modular politics. Um, and the resource fee uh, is allegorically correlated with water and the ongoing California drought, a, a theme that was running through d Camp. Though, as a sort of side note, it's interesting uh, that in, in the game, fee came to be understood as a stand-in for electricity, um, and so there's a sort of interesting kind of interpretive um, element there, um, either a misunderstanding on my part or something along those lines. Um, the uh, game was, that was played for this LARP was loosely based around Capture the Flag and NAMIC. Um, the NAMIC part is particularly interesting. In the spirit of, of NAMIC, a, a game designed around the premise of changing the game's rules um, on, on this particular topic, I'd recommend Douglas Hofstetter's article on nomic and the collection of metamagical themas, where he talks about nomic in relationship to reflexivity and law. Um, the, the game, the modules, had both immutable and mutable global rules. Um, as mentioned before, the, the LARP took place over two days uh, on the first and last day of camp, with two phases each. Uh, The first session involved the orgs defining their governance in relationship to the templates that they've been provided and coming to the administration and what was called the commons to present their structure and make proposals to amend the mutable rules. The second session revolved around organizations making a proposal for what to do about the scarce resource that they were managing. How would the organizations deal with the scarcity and could they coordinate with each other to find agreement? The historian and the ethnographer provide field reports from and across the two sessions, detailing in particular the online community, which came to be known as the individual, and the platform, which came to be known as borderless. The third organization, the local org, which came to be known as Root, is only accounted for in the periphery of the ethnographer and the historian's notes. Mm -hmm. Um, So the story that they tell accounts for the ways that organizations take shape, form cultures, default into habits and norms and how each researcher has positioned themselves in the field of research, in other words, their methodological practice. The individual develops uh the sorry rather the individual d- uh develops into, in the words of the ethnographer, a political system of stochastic autocratic theocracy, um, which is, by the way, just a great kind of like um Mashup of uh, ide- ideologies. I love that description. Um, driven by collective id, memes and an all-encompassing imperative to participate in dogmatic ritual, the border the borderless defaults into highly bureaucratic forms of decision making. Um, the flavored. By practices of sortition, except that their form of sortition is, is much more encumbered than the kind of the form of stochasticism that the individual adopts. Uh, of particular note and aligned with the previous reading groups are the ways in which fallibility comes into play. The, the borderless only realize the stakes of their endless, tiresome negotiations and are galvanized into coherent action by the theft of their fee from an anarchist who's shrouded in mystery. Uh, and the ethnographer later reveals in a postscript that a DDoS attack on the individual had been schemed, though not deployed, an attack that would have had the potential to immediately dissolve the individual and throw the organization into disarray. Though I, I do wonder, I feel like the individual was flexible enough that they could easily kind of bound back from that. Maybe that's a discussion for for later on uh, when we we get into that part. Um, So another notable moment from the the text is that an account that happens between the sessions where the online community or the individual is likened to the structure of QAnon, um, an individual voice operated by potentially up to four people, Um, This is also kind of similar to group run uh, Finsta or Instagram accounts, um, or many other cases of shared identity and online spaces. More broadly, though, and drawing from these contexts and their parallels with the governance of online spaces, organized with or without blockchains, the approach of documenting the formation of organizations and structures for governance and the fictional and speculative modality raise interesting questions for the place, function, and utility of digital ethnography, particularly in online social spaces, which it's notable have been characterized as being primarily spaces for identity exploration and formation. Or in other words, uh, spaces of worlding. I'll also point out that the work of Alice uh, E. Marwick and Donna Boyd are illustrative here in terms of this notion of identity exploration and formation in online social spaces. So, a- as a result of this collaboration, when we approached Ellie about joining us for today's session, she suggested we focus on the topic of what she's calling speculative ethnography, a type of synthesis or acknowledgement of the blurred boundaries between these two disciplinary practices and their application in digital and online spaces. And so to to get us started here, um, I'm going to invite um ellie and cola to introduce themselves in turn um give a brief uh account of their background and also kind of their uh a brief account of their experience in the larp but uh, i'm also curious to kind of get the conversation going if they could each give a little bit of an account for how their view of their discipline their their research practice has been shaped by each other's backgrounds in other words to kind of give like a a little bit of a taste for like what their conception of speculative ethnography is. And then we'll follow on to questions from the three of us and then open up more broadly. So I'll pass to Ellie and then we'll pass to Cola and then we'll go from there.
2: Thanks, Sense. Uh, So I'm a professor at RMIT University uh, in the Digital Ethnography Research Centre and the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. Uh, So I, yeah, I don't typically take a speculative fiction approach in my work deliberately, although, of course, there's always a um, the question in one's head when you're doing ethnography about uh, how real is what you're doing or writing um, or how representative of what occurred is the work that you're doing. Uh, for this one, um, I think it's worth saying at the outset that we were all LARPing. So I was LARPing as an ethnographer. <laughs> And uh, Kola was laughing as a historian. And for me, what was really interesting about about that experience was that it called into question, made me see and question the posturing that we do as ethnographers. Uh, and the and I think Kola's, um contribution in the piece, because we sh- I should say I wrote my sections first, and then he came in afterwards and and wrote his. That was the process. Um, he he really played with and took on board something which was deliberate on my part, which was the kind of distance of the ethnographer and the um uh I suppose almost the arrogance of the ethnographer in their relationship to this other uh community or world. Um so yeah, I mean I, I might leave it there because I think there's some things we can get stuck into. But that's um that that's pretty much how I saw it unfolding as an intro. Awesome,
3: yeah, um, yeah. Thank you, sent for introducing us. Um, but yeah, I'm Nicola, I'm a PhD student at Stanford University in the Modern Thought and Literature PhD program, and I'm also a speculative fiction writer. Um, I think Ellie t- touched on something that I'm pretty excited to talk about in regards to this LARP, mainly the the sort of the, the process of LARPing while also trying to, like, the, the character that you're playing is also supposed to have a sort of critical distance involved. Um, so as the historian and as the ethnographer, we're supposed to be kind of, like, literally these sort of, like, separate entities um, engaged with this sort of, um, this world and trying to come in as these sort of, like, uh, critical, distant whatever, and and that in itself was us playing those characters, um, which was really fun to, to to reflect on through writing this piece up. Mainly because while um, Ellie's ethnographer might be very distant, um, the response that I took with the historian um, became much more entangled with the the the, the other players, the other um, members of this world, to the point where that in itself also became a very um, sort of like unreliable narration and potentially not so great too. So there's this interesting balancing act between this this far distance and this basically no distance um, that we wanted to play with in the text. So yeah, I think I'll end that there too. Um, yeah.
0: So interesting. Thank you both. Um, I'd love to just jump in with a question about this method that you were in of speculative ethnography. Um, I guess especially Ellie. Um, how do you delineate, uh, the boundaries of observation, ethnography and fiction? I believe on an earlier version, there was kind of a disclaimer, like this is 95%, uh, fact. But what, like, what are you thinking about as you're writing up your field notes into narrative?
2: Yes. So what I wrote was very close to what went down in the LARP, which of course itself was a fiction, but it was also at the same time a series of un- events that unfolded through the players in the game and even the context of D Web itself and the Redwood Forest that we were in. Um, so it, I started with a very, um, familiar Traditional ethnographic practice of just being there and taking notes and observing, being very clear to everybody that I was the ethnographer, as I think does come out in the narrative. Um, but at the same time, it, it was kind of a coincidence that a number of us, I think Zagam as well, that, uh, and Collar and I and maybe one or two other people, um, were, were reading. That's right. The Black Swan folk who are here were reading Ursula Le Guin. And so, it, it just kind of made sense to uh, extend upon the existing uh, fiction of the LARP into something which was more Ursula Le Guin like, um, and Le Guin actually—that I've got a quote here, which is um, from one of her uh, non-fiction pieces of writing where she writes, as soon as you tell a story, it turns into fiction. So it's kind of true for ethnography as well as for fiction itself. Um, and, and, and that's certainly what, what was happening in the writing up of this piece and trying to confront, well, how much, how do we extend what is occurring in this setting further and think about, um, what it means at a societal level so and and in the way ethnography does in this case it's the societal level of us as people at, in this time dealing with web3 governance and all of the kind of possible models or problems that that's uh, bringing up for us which is what metagov was there to try to confront and talk about And, um, of course, also the kind of societal level of this fictional society. So there, for me, in terms of the practice, um, it was also about taking some of the discomfort of being an ethnographer, um, and, the, the, that kind of thing that I just described as the posturing or the uh, persona of the ethnographer and and your relationship to representation and subjectivity in general. But turning that into something joyful and playful, which was the fictional element and fun for me, um, not just for whoever was going to read it. So maybe I can
4: jump in here and follow up with another question which is is partially to Ellie but also to you Kola is kind of the question what makes um a piece of speculative ethnography good or useful in your opinion and maybe Ellie from your perspective like how does this type of writing complement the other forms of more traditional research or ethnographic research that you work on like what does that what sort of space does that open up and then maybe um in turn Kola for you um, being more deeply into the speculative fiction writing itself, like what what is the the kind of value proposition that that field makes, and also in terms of understanding the governance of worlds that we don't quite know yet and are are currently building together, how can that sort of help um, help to manifest a, a, a better understanding of the things that we might want to see and the dangers we're we're um, trying to avoid? So maybe, yeah, Ellie, if you want to go first.
2: Sure. So um, useful for whom is probably the question I would ask back to that. Um, So it was useful for me uh, in that it made me confront my practice as an ethnographer. And it might have been useful for the people there in that it was a a reflection upon an experience that they were all involved in um, and how far it extends beyond that. I don't know, and, and may never know. Um, the, I think what it, what it's good for um, is really stress testing questions that arise in our work around what if, so enabling us as researchers to kind of follow those threads which come through within the settings we work as digital ethnographers, which are generally um, involving some kind of ideas about the future or about alternative present and taking them further and trying to take them seriously as well rather than just dismissing them as some kind of ideology or aspiration. Uh, I think that those elements of Web3 and the work of technologists in general are really important in society, and this is a way to kind of engage with that, um, with whilst also I think um, not falling for it, <laughs> if that's a way to put it, um, you know, not just believing the hype, but trying to think through the multiple possibilities that could emerge. And that's what, for me, fiction does well and speculative fiction and the kind of work that cola does so i'm going to throw to cola
3: yeah i think i i also i like this idea of like stress testing um our methods that we use irl um, within the speculative environment i think that's probably you kind of summed it up in the sense that I, I i find when we do want to look at speculative work through the lens of how can it help us uh take actionable steps in the real world. Uh, that's one of its strongest uh, strengths where you can, you can test things out. It's, it's a place where the, the stakes for trying out new designs and, and um, ways of interacting are rather low. So you can do things which just would have not happened. I mean, the example that's coming straight to mind is from the, the LARP when uh, we had the whole anarchist situation, <laughs> the interaction there. Um, where a player was dis- um, decided to kind of play the the game and rules in a way that were just so drastically different from everyone else that it caused these very interesting societal disruptions across all the different um, sort of societies that were emerging in the lark. Uh, but you know you can can't really make that happen in a ethical or stable way in real life. At least not in a way that I'm that I'm aware of. You know, so it, it allows for that sort of um that sort of freedom to, to play around with things. And that leads into the fiction as well. You know, the the work that we wrote up in response to the LARP uh further extrapolates from what occurred, um, but allows us to bring in different uh interpretations in terms of how the players engaged with each other, um, even the the material environment which they found themselves in. Um, how the societies relate to those environments, these different things. So I think what I always say, like the, the big plus with speculative fiction and what kind of dis- distinguishes it from non speculative fiction, um, is just that with non speculative fiction, you have to, uh, you, you tend to relate different aspects of whatever environment or world you're describing, um, in ways that have to be pretty consistent with what we understand the real world to be as well. Um, with speculative work, you can start to juxtapose things that would never actually engage with each other in the same way um, they do in the text. So I think that's something that's really exciting and why this sort of uh, speculative ethnography work can be interesting as a way for us to kind of spread out, try different things that might not have been um, super actionable in real life, and then use those sort of uh, experiments. To influence what we do in real life as well
0: Alexia, did you have a question you wanted to ask? I do have a question, so um, I guess one of the things that I'm kind of trying to feel through is how both of you are oriented towards this the the terrain or the moral terrain of of the game or or the role playing so obviously. As I was reading through it, it was, it's the rules of the game permit a whole range of behaviors that are both positive and, um, you know, forms of violence. And, and so the implications are that as you rule, move through, through that environment, those things can occur to you. And, uh, I just wanted to understand how you kind of navigated the sense of distance of, of being dropped into the game as a stranger. Um, and And also, how you navigated the sense of repercussion of that
2: Oh, I was going to say, "Cola, you go first, but okay, um it was a it was an interesting experience, uh but of course, I think you know we weren't the only others in the game um. Laura and Callum's roles as the administrators were there almost as a kind of anchoring point that I felt we attached ourselves to. We kind of aligned ourselves with the, this kind of outside agency right from the start and we're having little side conversations with them <laughs> and all of that. And the, I think that the funniest thing um cuz nothing really felt like it was ever going to verge on violence chaos absolutely and and that that did happen not but not really violence but was the funniest thing was just the attempts by the groups to um get us to join their little cult uh particularly the individual um wh- but I think the others would have possibly tried those tactics too um at, at various points so it was not so much a um a violence, but, uh, our relationship to the chaos and how we navigated that, which I think was, was super interesting. And, and there were always these side players, people coming in, in and out of the game, like Zagum who I called the software engineer, who we basically recruited as a spy at one point. <laughs> and, um, so it, for us, the, the interesting thing about, and I think this is what we we're trying to play with in the piece, was the way that this really broke the boundaries of the game and took over the camp itself and the writing and the observation was an opportunity to reflect on that and and this kind of idea of um of, of groups trying to recruit and influence an entire setting which is what really occurred
3: yeah. Um there, I think the really interesting part about how we would engage with the rest of the players, um, also in relation to the like the administrators, you know, Laura and, and Callum, like was how um yeah, so we would we would kind of imply the sort of this closeness with the administration mainly because we were trying to have this sort of distance from what everybody else was doing. But I think even in how we approach that, that resulted in different ways that the groups uh, related to each of us. So I know that like, because I was um, in, when I was playing the role of the historian, I would continually like probe the different groups and ask them sort of questions um, and be like rather like physically present with them. Like I would sit down with them and, you know, Listen to their conversations, uh, provide a comment here and there, ask for clarification when they're talking about things, which kind of shocked them into remembering that I was there. Um, But after a bit of time, that made it so that they kind of incorporated me as a character who was like literally present with them, you know, um, and working not necessarily alongside them, but very much a a member of this world that is also kind of moving around in a way that's like, on the same sort of level as them, um, which is something I tried to reflect in the piece through how the historian was very quick to kind of fall into the local patterns of the groups that he was engaged with. Um, but meanwhile, with was like Ellie, right? So, I mean, you know, she can obviously talk about this way more, but like one thing I noticed was um, like, because of how clearly she would define the boundaries of interaction uh, with, the different groups, especially with the individual, she would quickly become like, almost like um, an invisible sort of like member, like like, distant observer, um, where they would not barely ever interact with her. Um, And only like when she, she would usually have to initiate or something like that, if there was ever gonna be any interaction in the first place, but they would really just not engage. The minute they see me come around, though, they're already very present. That's like how I got sucked into becoming a part of the individual in the first place. You know, so there was this really interesting way that even just the different approaches to how we were um, understanding our roles and how we were like trying to understand the different groups led to different levels of visibility um, in relation to how people played with us, you know, as with our roles and stuff.
2: And I think that that, it echoes what occurs when you're trying to research through ethnographic approaches online communities as well or the the practice of digital ethnography and particularly in the web3 area as you would know alexia you know that kind of the 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 idea of how involved are you in this particular group or um are you aligned with one group over another and um, the extent to which you need to be part of it or not and where you sit in relation to it so for me um, the the that kind of disconnection that Cole is describing in relation to my standpoint in the LARP is very much how I feel when I'm doing my case studies as well and um, people's Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just like a kind of scary person, but the, those questions of how much do you need to initiate that conversation or elicit information from people? When is it more useful to be in the background and stay silent and just observe? And what kind of demands do they make of you in, in terms of giving back? And of course, in the web three area, there's quite a lot of, um, demands among Dows in particular for a kind of constant, um, feedback and responsiveness from researchers. But you also need to rein that in and say, no, I'm not ready or I'm still observing or I'm trying to figure out what this all means. And, um, and, and so kind of, I suppose for me, the, um, the recruitment that goes on often in web three research is that. Uh, that that kind of constant appetite and hunger for something that they think of as ethnography, but which we might think of as differently and, and how you kind of toe that line. It's a really tricky thing to do. And, yeah, I'm also just a scary person.
4: I would very much disagree with that. Um, but I did have a question or something that came because you're touching on this point, like something that came through for me in the text um cola that you wrote at some point was almost that you felt like you'd sacrificed yourself to go on the inside and then by you know doing that you enabled ellie to also i don't know join the signal um have some of these like core insights and like more interactions i guess then also like spurred from 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 your side so I wanted to ask more generally about Wave 3 research and being an ethnographer and observing from the outside, but working in a team, right? So the way that I understood what you guys did is you're a duo and one part goes really becomes a member of a cult. Um, the individual and the other uh, is, is constantly observing that, that group evolving, how valuable was that experience. Um, How hard did it make it for you both to write up more a story together from afar? Um, And is that maybe actually a a way to approach some of these more difficult and weird from the outside looking research environments by having a co-pilot that is very much engaged and does not need to maintain the, the, the academic sort of
2: distance? Like what's the value there and the learning? Um, a hundred percent. I, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting. Collar and I were much more collaborative in the fields than <laughs> what we actually wrote. I mean, it comes across as though there was some kind of d- distance or hostility there, which, which is absolutely not the case. Um, we were always, um uh, you know having little side conversations and laughing at the whole experience throughout the process <laughs> um but the but i think you make a a great point there which is the the usefulness of collaboration and um and i think i think it is extremely useful to have that dynamic and um and and to to have someone else's perspective which just amplifies that point that we can only really see world through our point of view or our own interpretation and by bringing in that that juxtaposition of someone else's interpretation you get a more interesting picture in the end and hopefully a more accurate one too so i would absolutely encourage that collaboration with other people who are more embedded in a thing Um, and yeah but i'm curious to hear, hear cola's thoughts on that too.
0: Yeah,
3: I think that, that was super fun. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you also helped to clarify that because, yeah, there's, there is actually no beef between me and Ellie. <laughs> we're actually, you no, know, it was actually a really great time, um, collaborating and, and really like working through it in, in real time. We would go like and like kind of go off to the side and be like, okay, what just happened? <laughs> and then try to like understand. <laughs> and then come back, you know, like there was there was definitely a lot of really great moments like that. Um, I think one of the cool things about, you know, again, this is one of the exciting things about doing this, uh, this sort of this fictional retelling of it is bringing in aspects. Uh, like and even like so. So, I mean, we did a lot of expansion on the literal physical environment, but also like even just these interpersonal dynamics that don't actually play out. But provide a way to kind of look at the contrast between how we approach this same sort of task. You know, so like allowing for that, you know, like we already mentioned, the, um, the ethnographer taking that more distant approach and then the historian kind of just diving straight into it. Um, the surface level incompatibility of that being a uh, driving force to how I decided to characterize the historian's um, sort of in, um, dynamic with the ethnographer that was a big part of that but also like beyond that surface level of like oh you know we're not like engaging with each other really well it's obviously allowing them both a couple like you know affordances right you know like where the ethnographer can now engage directly with the individuals information because of what you know the historian helped to sort of provide through being subsumed into the signal and all of that sort of stuff um so it's like, I I think that actually reflects a lot of sort of my um, opinions on this. I think that, you know, having a, a varied like team working on this sort of ethnographic uh, research uh, with online, real online communities where people have varying levels of engagement with the community and, and varying levels of familiarity would be probably a really great way to go about it, you know, because uh, that sort of varying... Uh, sort of familiarity with all that sort of stuff will actually allow you to um, have like, hopefully helpful contrast and and, um, share like new ways to kind of collaborate and understand like, how can we engage with these people, um, but not like completely fall into it, but also not like just hover super far out and not actually engage with what's happening. so yeah, I think that was that was really cool. I, I think that was um, definitely not something I, I expressed the same way that was put in the question, but like, it, it's a really it's a really good point, and definitely echoes throughout the text.
2: I'd also add that I think that there's always a kind of um, dynamic that you that is useful to be aware of in doing ethnographies of these kinds of systems or in these kinds of systems, which is that that Collaborate, or the thing that you're kind of in relationship to, is sometimes non-human as well, and that's where fictionalizing or um, speculative ethnography, I think, also becomes useful and interesting. Which you know, with we, and, and traditional ethnography, I suppose Annette Singh's work comes to mind here, but others too, uh, is grappling with those kind of questions of the post-human. I think that the that extending the borders of reality in the way that we were attempting to do here is also a way though to encompass things which are not just context but actual active agents in a situation um and I don't know if we really went very far into that here perhaps you know the fee or the trees in particular I think the um the root organisation had kind of deliberately given the trees a kind of more than human intelligence um, in their own narrative, so we were able to play with it a little bit there, uh, but and we didn't take it far enough. But that, to me, is also the other kind of um, thing that you can play with and engage with in, in a fictional way.
3: Can I add on real quick, because I've... I've really like the point you said about, like, I think you phrased, like, extending sort of the, um, like, using the fiction to kind of extend the reality or the the world that we're looking at. Um, I think that that was also why this way of responding to the LARP felt like it was very uh, coherent or, like, it just, it it gelled very well with what happened, um, mainly because so much of the elements of the LARP extended beyond the traditional constraints of what the game world was supposed to be and how people were supposed to engage like to, to play the, the the game um and in a similar sense what's the the, the cool thing about all speculative work is that it, it makes that extension you know it takes what is already there and it's it's gonna extrapolate beyond that um so it felt like it it feels very thematically resonant to respond to this work in this sense as well and there's also why I felt comfortable making some of the uh, sort of taking some creative liberties in how it was describing the material reality of the borderless area and individual and all these different spaces, um, because this whole experiment seems to be, how can you extend beyond what's occurred, but still have it be a lot tied to something strong enough that it's still relevant. And um, yeah, it, it still speaks to some sort of true event that occurred.
1: I want to um, pick up a little bit on this worlding point, and in, in particular, the this this idea that I, I kind of propose in the the summary that you know online social spaces are primarily spaces for um, identity exploration and formation, and it, it strikes me that the the LARP. Um, also really serves that function in a physically grounded context. And so in many ways, it's, it's actually very applicable to an online context because of the kind of world-building similarity between the two. Um, and th- there, was this, there was this moment from the text that really stood out to me where um, there's a proposal that the, that the individual attempts to pass, which is actually just uh, a version of a proposal that borderless uh, was going to try to put through, but with this like added addendum that like there must be like this ritual that accompanies it at all times. Um, and it seemed to me that like there was this there's this way in which the identity was baked into the proposal. Um, like the proposal was the culmination of that identity exploration and formation. And then in many ways, like the thing, the 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 thing that was trying was actually being managed. Uh, was the, the proposal, it, the proposal became a resource um, rather than fee, fee sort of became this like indirect proxy. Um, but the real like, win state or success state of the game was who could put together a proposal that would kind of, you know, cohere uh, an approach towards the governance of this this scarce resource. And so I'm, I'm just curious to hear a little bit about like, you know, because there, there's parallels here with like, Improvement proposals, requests for comments that are very common in um, Ethereum, other blockchains, and also just like the the long history of rough consensus and consent um, and Internet governance with requests for comment papers spanning back to uh, IPTCP, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Like these these proposals become kind of like the condensation or the, the crystallization of this like online identity formation process and they become sort of social shelling points in some ways, which is why we kind of often ascribe them so much significance beyond just the technical implementation. I'm just curious if you could sort of speak to the, like what can be drawn from like this idea of like a proposal becoming a resource um, and how do we like use that to think about the like communities who are going through processes of doing governance online?
2: That's such an interesting point sent and it, it's one that I feel I'm actively trying to grapple with and engage with in the validator commons case study with MediGov as well uh, which is all about how do people respond to these pro- governance proposals that are put forward uh in, in context of proof of stake uh, with on-chain governance occurring and it's it's for me like the the lap it was just comical the extent to which they um exposed how much culture influences these um the, these kind of documents or um you know artifacts and things which are supposed to be quite uh you know structured or clinical or whatever it might be um it but in the end, you know, with, with, in this particular situation, it was very, very transparent that the online group were, or the, the individual, as they called themselves, um, were all about memes and all about um, indoctrination and these kinds of dynamics. That um, and, and that was how they thought they would get things passed. And, of course, they failed because everybody else resisted that quite um, strongly. So, it, <laughs> the, the, you know, it, and, and it just revealed something which is so obvious, really. And, and the non example, um, that the analogy to QAnon or the, um, that, that, that was real. So we were actually sitting down with a filmmaker, um, and I was there with a couple of members of the individual and she started talking about, um, how QAnon had a very similar process to them um, and that they were they were like that. So really what it what it kind of brought out is that our governance is very, very much about culture and about um this the types of ways that we communicate and um and do politics itself. Which I think in the web three environment, like, like you're mentioning the kind of Ethereum improvement process and all of those types of structured orderly conversations and discourse platforms or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, you know, we, we need them and we need those processes to be as considered as possible. But it's also very clear when you're an ethnographer that there's a lot more going on in them and that they, um, that, yeah, I think, I think it's not so much about what you're trying to solve for here, but more just understanding where people are coming from and the extent to which that is influencing the kinds of proposals they put forward or how they engage in them. And the most obvious example right now being, um, the, the, the Cosmos, um, re- the rejection of, of the Cosmos, uh, hub proposal, um, very, very outrightly and in a very contested form. Um, and um, I heard from one of, one person who was quite involved with it all that the um, Korean community, for instance, had a very particular view and, and everyone was taken by surprise, in the same way that a lot of Americans were taken by surprise around Trump, you know, that, that there was just this whole group of people who were able to vote who saw the situation very differently and were doing so in non-English language forums and the rest of it. And 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 that's really I think what we're kind of grappling with in the Web3 context as well, is that there are these other national and language um, uh, kind of subgroups within these sovereign states of blockchains that we're not necessarily very upfront about, and maybe that's something that ethnography can be good for revealing and dealing with.
3: Yeah, I I think Ellie summed it up, like, way better than I could. I just wanted to add and um, emphasize that, yeah, near the end with the proposal sort of sequence at the end of the LARP, yeah, watching it become, like, a literal culture war was... It shouldn't have been surprising, but it was. Um, and I guess just because of how, um, obvious it became that it really, it really did boil down to just tensions of, well, we don't like how they do this. <laughs> and, and the alignment of like the root, um, with borderless came out of, uh, a shared desire to retain their indigenous practices as well. Because there was this implicit threat um, from the individuals like aggression that you know they would lose all of their sort of systems of sense making knowledge making to the particular ways the individual made sense of the world so yeah it was it was really uh, a wild sequence of events near the end
1: yeah, thanks so much
3: um we We are coming
1: up on time here um i uh I see that we have a comment from Callum, who I, who was one of the people from Black Swan, who I had asked if they um, wanted to respond. And I think Callum is text only at the moment, so I might just read this out loud I, and then.
5: I oh. can. Um, it I don't know. I was just the the discussion on worlding. I thought was super interesting, and uh a thought that I've had throughout the discussion is around the difference between a speculative ethnography and embedding an ethnographer within a live action role-playing game where you have a kind of multiplicity of agents somehow crafting a world together and and how the ethnographer embedded in this multi-dimensional world is also kind of shaping that world and the example that I was thinking of is how in the first draft I think of the report that uh, the speculative ethnographer had made there was this mention that the whole experience took part took place on planet d um on on a planet that was never something that we had kind of imagined or described there was no kind of intergalactic dimension to this larp from the you know administration side of things um and i guess this yeah just made me reflect a bit on this Binary between the emic and the etic, which I guess like anthropological practice is so premised on, ethnographic practice is so premised on and how like this act of naming the world of Fornica planet D was this kind of like jumping out from the outsider position to this insider position. And um, there's something kind of truthful in the way that a world can never contain somebody or something and how there's like many worlds that somebody is juggling and moving in and out of. And this act of telling a story about a world gives shape to it and participating in a world is also shaping that world. And yeah, so I really thought it was fascinating to also be able to read some kind of documentation of this whole thing, because as the facilitator you're just trying to make sure that nothing like breaks or that there's like no terrible violence or like so i it was hard to even experience it from my perspective, so it was amazing to encounter it afterwards
2: thanks Callum. the i mean the the reason why I took it to this kind of galactic level was partly because of you guys as in I needed to find a way to talk about you and my observation of you and Lara was that you were um you know you'd done this before in (laughs) other places and with other groups so it was this well they've kind of zoomed themselves in from another place and are kind of in a position of power and authority over a group that has its own thing going on. Um, But so, so for me, it was, it was the lifespan thing that that made me have to take it to that level because I felt that your lives and the lifespan of your work was so much bigger than what occurred at D web. Um, and, And so, so for me, that was the reason why I did that, but it did, as you say, kind of, uh, add these layers of artifice and more narrative and more fiction into something which was already um, a very structured fiction
5: but I think this was also like the, the invitation and something that is interesting about the format is how it's being built on in an exquisite corpse fashion by many different actors
1: great um well okay we're we're at the top of the hour. Um, thank you everyone for coming. Before we close, I want to give both Ellie and Cola an opportunity to um, mention any upcoming projects that they're working on, where, uh, where you can find them. I think Ellie is doing a conference uh, soon um, for some of the people who are in Australia. Um, so I'll give each of them an opportunity to just mention anything that's going on or where people can connect with them uh, outside of this, and then we'll close.
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, Before I do that, I'd just like to say thank you so much to Black Swan for uh, just creating the experience and inviting us in uh, because I think one thing we haven't really highlighted is the extensive amount of um, work that went into running it and that initial world building that occurred way before Cole or or I entered the space. but okay, so I um, I'm on Twitter at Eleanor Rennie with an Eleanor with an I, and uh, I am having a conference on the 12th to the 15th of December here in Melbourne at RMIT University, and a number of LARPers from this event will in fact be speaking <laughs> and participating. Uh, MetaGov is a partner in the event, and it's called What's Governing Web3. And you can see the details at admscenter.org.au forward slash web3.
3: Yes, I um, want to echo what Ellie said. This is, could not have happened at all without um, Callum and Laura and the amazing work they already did with uh, this project. So thank you both for allowing us in and sharing the sort of experimental space with us um so for me i'm also on twitter uh Kola, hr so k-o-l-a-h-r um i have a couple things going on but there's nothing that i can share publicly yet so just follow me there and hopefully you'll see some things pop up soon um but yes thank you again i think um all of you all of y'all for hosting us here for this for this talk this is really amazing
0: Thank you so much to our guests and participants in the Digital Ethnography and Blockchain Governance Reading Group. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes, including links to further research at rmitblockchain.io.